everyone, you're listening to Bionic Bug Podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I discuss the latest news about emerging technology, read chapters from Bionic Bug, and explore the real-life technologies featured in my novel. We'll discuss where fiction meets reality in the future. Hey everyone, welcome back to Bionic Bug Podcast. You're listening to episode number 22. This is your host, Natasha Bajma, fiction author, futurist, and national security expert. I'm recording this episode on September 23, 2018. Next week, I'm heading to Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California to present my research on emerging technologies and weapons of mass destruction. I'm so excited. This will be my first time visiting this lab. It is the famous nuclear weapons laboratory where the hydrogen bomb was first developed. This bomb has been referred to in the past as the super bomb. Today we call them thermonuclear weapons. So how are they different from the first nuclear weapons or regular atomic bomb? Well, the first bombs were fission weapons in that they leveraged the energy released from atoms of uranium-235 when they split into two smaller parts. Thermonuclear weapons exploit the energy released when two atoms fuse into one, and this is called nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion uses lighter elements such as tritium, deuterium, or lithium deuteride. These are lighter than uranium, um, which is one of the heaviest elements on the periodic table. This way we can get much greater yield from much less material, which means lighter weapons. The catch is that you can't produce nuclear fusion on its own. You need a fission bomb to compress the material to produce fission. So there are actually two different stages in a thermonuclear weapon. For all of you Star Trek fans out there, I'll be getting a tour of the National Ignition Facility. This is home to a giant laser, as I understand it. Um, This is also the facility where scientists are studying nuclear fusion for the purpose of generating electricity. We've been promised nuclear fusion for many, many decades and are still waiting very eagerly um, uh, to see how that turns out. Um, Star Trek fans probably know that the NIF was used as the set for the Starship Enterprise's warp core in the 2013 movie Star Trek Into Darkness. I look forward to reporting on my trip, hopefully next week, and cross my fingers I can get pictures. I'm not sure. So let's talk tech. Two years ago, no, not two years ago, two weeks ago, it feels like two years, I spoke at an event called Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction from Threat Reduction Threat Detection and Disruption to Response Operations, hosted by Noblis. Um, My panel was on the future of countering WMD. It surprised me, however, that we spent most of our panel talking about big data and the implications of our digital actions. To be fair, we were talking about the revolution in biotechnology that promises to transform society, business, and government, but also the threat of biological weapons. But we're also talking about a growing threat of the collection of data by companies and even more troubling by potential adversaries. I'll include the video in the show notes if you're interested in watching my panel, Um, but this will be the theme for this episode. So my first headline today is an old one, China's bid to become a DNA superpower by David Siranowski in Nature Magazine. And this was published in June, 2016, more than two years ago. So what is it about? China is buying up gene sequencing companies and collecting genomic data to become a bid to in a bid to become a DNA superpower. Already in 2016, China had more than half the world's capacity to decode DNA. Um, And that is reading DNA for the purposes of treating disease. 
You may find this troubling, but companies in the U.S. are outsourcing the sequencing of Americans' DNA overseas in many instances to China. That means that China is getting access to our genetic data. And all of the privacy, uh, health privacy acts that apply here in the U.S. do not apply when um, our medical uh, samples leave this country. So you might be wondering, why is China gobbling up all of this genetic data? What is, what is the plan? Um, well, in a word, precision medicine. I guess that's two words. This refers to the idea that someday we'll be looking at our DNA profile when we visit a doctor to identify the potential sources of disease and ailments, and then using that information to tailor medical treatments specific to your genetic makeup. This will be an amazing revolution in medical treatment. Um, instead of just getting you know, the pill that everybody else gets, you're going to get a tailored approach to address your specific ailment. And this is going to cure disease. It's going to um, uh, solve a lot of problems. It's very exciting. But there are other more ominous ways that this information can be used and hence the growing concern. The data grabbed by China is part of a broader national security or national strength strategy. If you're interested in reading more about how China is preparing for the new era of digitization, both in life and on the battlefield, I encourage you to read Applying America's Superpowers, How the U.S. Should Respond to China's Informatization Strategy. This was published in War on the Rocks by Charles Rybeck, Lanny Cornwell, and Philip Sagan on September 10, so just a few weeks ago. And so this also, I read the article with, with great interest. Um, this leads to my final headline for this week, China is rolling out a mandatory program that puts tracking chips in every car. And this is published on June 14, 2018, just a couple months ago in futurism.com. Starting next year, China will require all newly registered cars to be equipped with highly trackable RFID tags. What are RFID tags? Well, these are radio frequency identification tags used for tracking via radius signals. These tags also contain information identifying what is being tracked and various um, information about that, that object. Unlike a barcode, we're very familiar with those. Um, you scan them and they also contain information about what is being scanned. These RFIDs don't need to be within sight of a reader. They send off a signal and you can pick up that signal. Um, so they can also be embedded inside of objects. So this could mean the end of shoplifting in the near future. These tags have become incredibly cheap. Um, over the years, the economies of scale have increased significantly. The price and cost of microelectronics and sensors has gone down. And so we're gonna see RFIDs in so many more things um, in the near term. They can be used to track cash. It's really hard to track cash, but you can you track cash with RFIDs, clothing, possessions. They can be implanted in animals and people. Um, Anyone have an easy pass for driving on highways and paying tolls? This is the same technology. You don't understand how many RFID um, technologies we're already using in our daily lives. In fact, many cars in the US already have um, either GPS tracking or chips. If you have a car that um, gives you access to services such as OneStar, um, there's a way for the company to know where your car is if you're in trouble. And then I saw a commercial recently about a teenager partying and getting caught by his parents because they bought him a new car, lucky kid, with such a chip. And so they knew where he was when he said he was somewhere else. Whoops. Um, so this is coming to us. So we, you know, 
China's doing it with intention. Um, they're, the, the Chinese government's referring to these tags as electronic license plates and justifying them in the name of public safety and other um, reasonable um, excuses. But we are entering an era in which all of our actions will be tracked, and that has huge implications. And I don't think um, we've thought about that as a population in this country. And, and we're putting out data every day. Who has that data? Who has access to the data? What are they doing with the data? I think awareness has just finally started with the whole Facebook um, testimony before Congress. But we have so much further to go. And I just fear that it's going to be too late. So on that positive note, let's turn to Bionic Bug. Last week, Lara learned more details about the arson on her townhouse. Vic tricked Killerbot into clicking on an insecure link and got an IP address located at an abandoned violin shop. Let's find out what happens next. Chapter 22, The Violin Shop. After they piled into the FBI cruiser, Rob took off at high speed with his sirens blaring and lights flashing. The traffic on North Capitol yielded obediently to the FBI vehicle. Rob quickly shifted back and forth between lanes, jerking his passengers to the left and then to the right. Lara reached up for the handle above the door to steady herself. For once, a driverless cab didn't seem too bad. It's much easier to navigate the streets these days, Rob said, grinning at her in the rear mirror. Engineers program the software in self-driving cars to force civilian cars to pull over to the side of the road in an orderly fashion whenever they receive a signal from an active emergency vehicle. No more dodging cars and driving on the opposite side of the road when traffic refuses to yield properly. That doesn't mean you need to drive like a crazy person, Lara said, gripping the handle tightly. She glanced over at Vic, who shared the backseat of the cruiser with her. Every time the SUV's tires squealed, Vic grinned from ear to ear. He clapped his hands together a few times. It's like we're in some sort of police chase, he said, as he steadied himself against the window. Lara rolled her eyes. Only Vic would think this is fun. After about 20 minutes, the SUV screeched to a halt in front of an abandoned storefront on Butternut Street in the northwest quadrant of the district. City parking meters lined the street, shaded by large maple trees. A broken neon sign hung above the window. Trouble pitch. Not waiting for the others to exit the vehicle, Lara jumped out and raced across the street. An old woman exited the run-down laundromat next door, holding a large basket of freshly folded laundry. She gave Lara a dirty look and then hurried to her car parked on the side of the road, as if she smelled trouble. By the time the detective and Rob approached the building, Lara was already peering through the window. Vic had remained in the cruiser, glued to his digispecs. I can't see much from here, Lara said to Sanchez and Rob as they joined her. There's some stuff covered in plastic and a few cardboard boxes lying around. It looks abandoned. Let's get a better look, Rob said, taking out a lockpick from his pocket. Shouldn't we get a warrant first, Sanchez asked. Lara, do you see anything suspicious in the shop? Rob grinned at her. She followed his cue. I guess so. Good enough for me. Rob picked the lock and they entered the shop one by one. Out in front, Rob and the detective pulled out their guns. FBI, show yourself. Put your hands in the air. A rustling of paper followed by a loud thud came from the back room. Psst, Rob said, holding his fingers to his lips. He shouted again. FBI, come out now. A door fo opened, followed by a loud bang, and then footsteps headed toward the back of the shop. 
I'll go after the suspect, Rob said, as he ran toward the noise, his gun drawn. You stay here and check out the rest of the place. Lara followed Sanchez, checking behind the front desk, the storage room, and another small room being used as an office. She placed a hand on the computer on the desk. It was warm to the touch. Next to it, a laser printer. She sniffed and smelled a hint of toner in the air. It was just used. Everything's clear, the detective announced, holstering his gun. Lara caught a whiff of an intensely sweet aroma. Do you smell that? Sanchez nodded. Jasmine? Lara did a double take. The detective is full of surprises today. She shook her head and continued, Anita burned incense at her practice with the same fragrance, and I detected a sudden noise from the front of the shop startled them. A pile of boxes tumbled to the floor. They both turned to see Vic wandering into the shop, wearing his digispecs and not paying attention to his surroundings. Vic, wireless internet appears to be working. Come check to see if Killerbot used this computer. Lara pointed to the blinking router. Vic plopped down at the computer, grinning like a kid in a candy shop, and began typing one-handed. It will take me a few minutes to hack the password, maybe longer, depending on its strength. Lara nodded and searched the shop more carefully. From the thick dust layer covering everything in the store, Lara assumed it hadn't been cleaned in years. Large sheets of plastic hung over the furniture and shelves as protection from dust buildup. Random sheets of music were scattered on the floor. In the front corner of the shop, a piece of plastic hid what appeared to be a small case. She knelt on the floor and carefully lifted up the plastic to avoid disturbing the dust. She pulled out a black violin case with an antique finish. What have we here? Lara opened the case. Inside it had a thick velvet lining. The violin was missing. An orphan bow rested in the slot in the lid. Pulling out the bow and inspecting it closely, Lara could tell it was no ordinary bow. She took a picture of the bow and then spoke into her smartphone. Watson, could you please identify the violin bow in this picture? Of course, Miss Kingsley, Watson paused for a few seconds. I've identified the bow. Based on a quick comparison, the bow is made of Pernambuco wood, a very rare and high quality. The tip plate is made of solid gold. Here are some images of similar violin bows. Lars scanned through the images and clicked on a matching photo. It was worth a fortune. Why was such an exquisite bow left behind, separated from its violin? A piece of paper sticking out of the pocket bow slot distracted her. Setting down the bow, she pulled out the slip. The words were printed by an old typewriter. If lost, please return to Jan Spielmann, 3300 White Oak Drive, Silver Spring. Detective Sanchez, I think I found something, Lara called out. This violin case belonged to Spielmann, a.k.a. Fiddler, and there's an address. It tracks with Fiddler's known whereabouts by his daughter. I found something, too, Sanchez walked over to Lara with two large scrolls of paper. He rolled out the first scroll to reveal a detailed map of Fort Dietrich. That's where Fiddler worked before he got fired, Lara said. What's the other one? It's a detailed map of the National Security Agency at Fort Meade, Sanchez said, rolling out the second scroll. Huh, Laura frowned. What do you suppose that means? Maybe Fiddler is planning something with the Beatles and these are his targets, Sanchez shrugged. Lara bit her lip as she thought about the possibility. I also did a quick check on the ownership of Trouble Pitch, the detective said. And, Lara asked. The business is registered to an Anita DeVries, born in the 1940s. Without confirmation, I'd guess that name belonged to Fiddler's mother, and DeVries must be have been her maiden name. 
That's why we didn't find the shop when we investigated John Spielman. Lar nodded. Fiddler sure likes his aliases. He must have bought the place right after he moved out here from California, maybe before he changed his name from Spielmann to Fiddler. They both turned to see Rob coming back into the shop, his chest heaving. I chased him for ten blocks, but he, he had a head start. Rob bent over, trying to catch his breath. What did he look like, Sanchez asked. Rob breathed heavily. Didn't get a close look. Maybe six feet tall, regular build, brown hair. He looked young, in his 20s, I think. Could that be Ashton? While you were running after the suspect, we found another address, Sanchez said. It's not far from here. We should check it out while Vic attempts to break into the computer. Rob wrinkled his brow and glanced at Lara. She returned his worry with, what's your problem look? Is he concerned over Vic's hacking or about my safety? Either way, I don't need a knight in shining armor, especially if it's Rob. Rob's face went deadpan at Lara's glaring. You two okay here for a bit? He asked. We'll be right back. Lara gathered all the sarcasm she could muster. No, Rob. This is so much scarier than freaking Afghanistan. Rob rolled his eyes and held up his hands in surrender. Fine, he said. I was just asking. You've had a few rough days. Just call us if you have any problems, okay? Yeah, sure. Lara crossed her arms. Lara, Rob gave her that puppy dog face that used to make her cave every time. She shook her head. I promise, she said. I'm not stupid. If I need you, I'll call. Lara watched the two men hurry out of the violin shop. Then she laid out both maps on the front desk and studied them, hoping that they would tell her something. What are you up to, Fiddler? What do you know about Sully's killer? On the map of Fort Dietrich, Fiddler had circled in red marker the lab where he had worked. Is the detective right? Is this your target? She thought about the Bible verse she'd read, about the plague of insects sent against the Egyptians. Something didn't add up. Revenge would have been a great motive decades ago before he ever set foot in the lab. But why now? I did it, Vic shouted. Lara's head popped up from studying the map, and she ran over to see what he found, peering over his shoulder. Vic had accessed the computer and was checking the IP address. This is it! This is the computer Killerbot used to communicate on the TechNow message board. Fiddler sent his emails from here? Lara asked. I don't know about that, but I'm absolutely certain Killerbot sent emails from here. I have no way of telling if Fiddler ever logged in as Killerbot at this location, or if he simply had someone else manage his comms for him. Oh, right. Is there anything useful on the computer? Any files? Internet search history? Let me see. Vic opened up a browser. This is where Killerbot went wrong. To maintain anonymity on Tor, never use the internet on the same computer. I set him up with malware and he can resist clicking on my link, which led him straight to an insecure site on the internet and voila, we found him. Vic loaded up the last internet link that was opened. When the page appeared on the screen, Lara's mouth fell open. It was an old newspaper article from a year ago. One survivor in car crash on the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. The article reported that a local doctor, Dr. Anita Moore, had survived a car crash that killed her husband and son, Frank and Jaden Moore. Their car collided with the railing of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, breaking through the steel barrier and plummeting into the cold water below. Although the family survived the impact of the fall, only Anita escaped the car in time and swam to the shore without complications. Frank drowned at the scene. Jaden was resuscitated and brought to the hospital where doctors discovered severe brain damage and went unable to save his life. 
In her report to the police, Anita claimed her husband dodged a car barreling toward them on the wrong side of the bridge. When the other driver didn't stop, her husband lost control of the car and crashed into the railing. Police couldn't find any evidence of another car. The article noted that the husband worked as a senior cryptologist at NSA. Vic rubbed his chin. It's been a while since I've read about a major accident, you know, since we can't drive manually in D.C. anymore. Yeah, but the law doesn't apply outside the district, Lara mumbled, absentmindedly lost in her thoughts. Justine's lover was named Frank. He worked at the NSA. This is too coincidental not to be connected. Lara connected the dots. Anita's husband and Justine's lover were one and the same. She stared intently at the article, rereading it several times. Does the article mean something to you, Vic asked. Lara scrunched her face. I didn't realize Anita's husband worked for the NSA. And when I visited Anita at her office, I asked about her son, but she couldn't talk about him. The accident happened only a year ago. No wonder she got upset. This could explain Fiddler's retreat from society as well. As a doctor, Anita must feel overwhelming guilt at not being able to save her husband or her son from drowning, Vic said. Strange, Lara stared at the computer screen. What's strange? Vic asked. Anita goes by her maiden name now, but her married name remains on her practice and is used in this article. Why would a widow change her name back to her maiden name? Vic's eyes lit up, and he typed Anita Moore into the internet browser window. She peered over his shoulder. The search results exceeded her wildest expectations. One scandalous headline after another about Anita Moore and her husband. Vic clicked on the first article. The headline read, Senior Cryptology Analyst Suspected of Leak at NSA. Lara's jaw dropped as her eyes raced back and forth, digesting the content. It says Frank Moore was suspected of leaking classified information and selling advanced defense technology over the dark web under a pseudonym. NSA officials claim it found massive amounts of evidence to support the allegations, so they suspended Frank's clearance and launched a formal investigation. That's when Frank allegedly drove his family over the Chesapeake Bridge in an effort to commit suicide. They later cleared him of charges when the dark web activity continued after his death. The NSA thought Frank was Cybershop. Lara nodded grimly. If you read further, you'll see the NSA then suspected Anita was his accomplice, carrying on the activities after her husband's death. However, after months of harassment, interrogations, and searches by authorities, they finally cleared her name as well. Vic pressed the back button and selected the next link. The article's headline read, Anita Moore, wife of dead NSA, senior cryptologist, prime suspect in collusion with the Russians. Vic grimaced. This could explain why she changed her name back to Fiddler, to avoid further spotlight and negative press. Yeah, and now we've established a clear link between Fiddler and the NSA, Lara said. I think Fiddler might be planning something with the Beatles. It seems he's chosen two targets, Fort Dietrich and Fort Meade. Fiddler is likely to seek is likely seeking revenge on the army and the NSA for ruining his family. Lara heard the front door of the shop open. Miss Kingsley? Sanchez called out. In the back room, Lara shouted. The detective and Rob walked into the room. Did you find anything? Lara asked. No, it was a complete bust, Rob said. A house once stood at that address, but not anymore. A massive commercial development took its place about two years ago. We checked out the lobby. No suspicious tenants, mostly tech startups. It must have been Fiddler's old home address. Unfortunately, we can't search it further without a warrant. And I'm not sure a judge will grant us one without any evidence. I think it's a dead end. Any luck with the computer, Sanchez asked. 
They cracked the password, Laura filled them in on what they had learned. Why would someone search online for Fiddler's dead family members from this computer? Rob asked, scratching his head and staring at the screen. Good question, Laura shrugged her shoulders. Is Ashton trying to send me messages? But why? Vic, what's that paper peeking out from underneath the keyboard? Rob pointed at the edge of the keyboard. Vic lifted it and pulled out Google Map directions to a company called Beautific Creations. At that moment, Lara's suspicions were confirmed. Hey, didn't you hear about that place from that dermatologist you visited? Yeah, Lara said, and now I'm convinced that's where the toxin came from. The one that killed Sully. Thanks for listening to the Bionic Bug Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. See you next week.